Amen. Well, good morning, and uh, let me add a welcome to you as well, uh, to Christ Community. My name is, is Tim, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And, and this morning, we're going to continue in our, our series uh, through uh, the Psalms and the, the themes of Advent. And so this morning, we'll be in Psalm 25. So if you have a Bible, you can grab it and, and turn to Psalm 25. If uh, you're a kid and you want to connect kind of on your level, you can grab. We have Kids Connect, the green sheets in the back of the room. Uh, you can grab those as, as well. Um, but what I'd like to do is, is actually read all of Psalm 25. Um, Then I'll pray for us, and then we will uh, uh, jump into the psalm. Here's Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. For he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let us pray. Father, I pray that that Psalm 25 would be true for me. This day, and as I pray this, I pray we would pray this corporately as, as a church. God, make me to know your ways and teach me in your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait. All the day long. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I mentioned a second ago that we're spending this Advent Christmas season preaching through kind of the prime themes of what Christmas uh, is through the Hebrew songbook, through the Psalms. And so we, we've already looked at hope. We've already looked at um, peace. And this week we are, are turning our attention to, to love. And Christmas may be the season where the polar experiences that love offers us are, are most on display. That on the one hand, it, I think Christmas, at least for me, deepens my experience of love that, that I have. That I love this time, uh, especially now that I have, have kids. There's been an enhancement to, to that, that. I've always loved going around and looking at Christmas lights, but doing it with children makes it even, even more special. 
Uh, so we did that this, this week, and, and I don't know, at some point people decided putting, putting lights on their house wasn't enough. They started like blowing things like balloons and putting balloons in their front yard. And for a while they were decent size, but, but I drove by a house this, this week that had a, a two-story Santa in their front yard. Like, like, I don't know who the guy was. It was like, one story, not quite Santa enough for us. We got to go two. We got to go above the kids' room. It was a giant Santa. Um, and, and, and yet, even though most, probably if I see that in January, I think that's weird. Um, but, but now it's like, that's awesome. Give me a three-story Santa, right? Like, I can't have enough Santa. Uh, I love this, this time of year. There's a sense in which the love I have, which is, you know, for my kids, for my family, it gets enhanced. It gets deepened. It's more, it's, it's more meaningful for, for this time of, of year. And so in Christmas, we, our, our experience of love is, is deepened on the one hand, but on the other hand... Um, we taste the bitter disappointment of, of lost love in more profound and intense ways. We, we remember love that never was. We remember love that we've lost. We remember love that, that isn't anymore. And so as a child, I loved in this season going and visiting my four grandparents, um, going to their house, seeing their tree, spending time with them. And, and as of this Christmas, only one of my grandparents is still with us, and, and he's 90 years old, about to be 91, and I won't get to see him on Christmas this, this year, and, and he won't be welcoming in all of the people he used to welcome into um, his house as he used to, because the years have piled on and his back has grown too weary to carry um, all the love that Christmas brings with it. So let me give you this depressing Christmas thought, <laughs> that all, all human love that we experience it's deteriorating. It's breaking down. It's going away. It's dissipating. Whether it's death, whether it's, it's conflict, whether it's just the disappointments of life, you live life long enough. Christmas, on the one hand, makes two-story Santa's deeply meaningful and an incredible experience. And on the other hand, um, Christmas Eve, I'll be thinking of a family members I don't have around me anymore or I won't get to see. Oh, it, it, Christmas brings out both of those experiences, and, and it leaves us asking a question, which is, is there a love that won't deteriorate? Is there a love that's not breaking down, that's not going away? That's a question Psalm 25 is, is wrestling with, and it's not a trite meditation on love, that if you put, if you put 25, or Psalm 25 to music and, and to a song, you wouldn't play it in the mall at this time of year. People wouldn't hear that and want to buy more things. Right? It'd, it'd make them deep and introspective, and it wouldn't be good for the mall experience. And so, so this psalm, it starts, it starts in the death, depths. It starts in the valley of the shadow of death. The second step of the, the psalm puts us sort of, it gives us this mountaintop experience and view of what the love of God actually is. But then it takes us back to the depths. That's where it ends. And yet as David takes these three steps, as he goes through these experiences, it's clear he, he understands what love is, what in particular the love of God is, with a depth and, and a, a hopefulness that we need. And so if we take that, that journey with him this morning, well, we might have that same experience. We might be changed. So let's take it step by step. The first step of Psalm 25, um, starting in the depths, is that the love of God will always include trouble. That's right where the psalm starts in verse 2 when David says... In God, my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. The psalm starts with enemies surrounded David who want to take his life, who want to shame him. That instantly there's, there's trouble, but it gets worse in verse 
3, David says, None who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Treacherous. This word hints to the fact that the people who turn on David are friends. Or maybe family. These aren't some mortal enemies David's had throughout his life. These are our former friends, people he loved, that have now turned on him in treachery. So we're in the valley of the shadow of death here. David looks around to the hillsides around him and he sees people he once loved, people he once knew intimately, <clears throat> former family who, who are training their eyes on him and want to kill him and bring him down. And it's important we start here because I think anytime we talk about the Psalms, uh, I think we, we can often misunderstand them or come at them in, in the wrong sort of, of way. That I often um, thought the Psalms were, were somewhat like the precious moments figurines. If you've, if you've encountered those, if you have some of those at your house, um, no offense about what I'm about to say about those, but uh, the precious moment figurines, what they are is they're like angels or adults, but in the form of babies. Right, so they're kind of like man babies that we put around our house this time of year to celebrate the holidays. And, and so they're, they're, they're baby angels is what they are. But even though angels in the Bible were terrifying and freaked people out, um, anytime people encountered angels, we, we sort of made them into baby-like form. And so precious moments, they're cute, they're harmless, don't, don't take what I'm saying too seriously. Um, but I think that's often how I view the Psalms, sort of like the, there's, these artists wrote the Psalms and they were like these cute, cuddly people and they were artists and they were just, they had this just positive disposition on life. That's not true. The Psalms are not harmless. They're not cute. They're not, they're not man babies, right? They're not, they're, not, they're not precious moments. The Psalms have trouble. People are trying to kill you. Your life is threatened. Your, your life is on the line. You're in the foxhole. That when you think Psalms, don't think, don't think Precious Moments. Think Saving Private Ryan. Think Hacksaw Ridge. Think your fa- put your favorite war movie in your mind. And that's where the Psalms are spoken out of. Everything's on the line. Your life, yourself. People have turned on you. You're, you're alone. <laughs> so you hear that in David's language, that one word that is, is very important in the Psalm is this word shame. It appears three times in this Psalm. David's afraid that, that his experience, what he's going through, is going to lead to him being mocked and pointed at and ultimately dead. But David says he's alone. He's lonely. He says he's distressed. <clears throat> he says he's troubled. He's afflicted. But David, he's in trouble. And the Psalms are full of trouble. And the love of God, God's love towards you, will always include trouble. And so David asks a question that you and I ask. That when we see people turn on us, or when we just see the the normal experience of human love, it deteriorates, it dissipates, it it goes away, it begins to break down. We ask the question that David is asking here, which is, is God you too? Is your love towards me, is it like every other love? Is it, will it be, when I need it, will it be gone? Is it breaking down? Is it going away? And the reality is, if David asks this question, you're going to ask this question in your life. Because remember, David wrote Psalm 23, probably the best-known psalm in the Bible. And that's just two psalms ago. And so these, Psalm 23 and 25 are, are put right next to each other. My guess is, for some reasons, that you have very similar themes in both, but an entirely different experience. And so in, in Psalm 23, David talks about the paths of, of God. Right? God leads me in paths of righteousness he, for, for his name's sake. It's, it's a confident statement, but here it's a request. David is saying to God, make me to know your paths. I don't know where I am. God, teach me, show me something. In Psalm 23, David expresses with confidence, the Lord leads me beside still waters. 
But in Psalm 25, it's a request. Lead me in your truth and teach me. God, I don't know where I am. Where are you? Lead me. And so David, the author of Psalm 23, experienced God as this, this intimate shepherd guiding him through life and yet also wrestles with the trouble God has left him in. You'll, you'll have the same wrestling. You'll wonder if God's love, if it's going away, if it's breaking down, if it, if it will really be there. So this is where the psalm starts, and this is where we have to start, I think, when we approach the love of God. The love of God includes trouble. This isn't a precious moments world. Friends betray, family members lie, cancer, disease, becomes an unwelcome guest at our tables, marriages break down, and, and finally, ultimately, we all have, there's death that's coming. And so Daniel asks the question, we need to ask the question, God, will your love fail me too? Will it put me to shame? Am I wasting my life on a love that will not be there when I need it? So that's the first step Psalm 25 takes. We're in the valley of the shadow of death. But what David does next, the the next step he takes is he begins to meditate and think out God's love. And in particular, really one one sentence, what what David thinks out about God's love is that the love of God will never put you to shame. So we need to take a moment and unpack what exactly we mean when we say God loves us because I think if if we think anything about God in our culture, it's that God loves us, right? That's the one thing he's supposed to do. And often I think because we all just assume that's what he does, we we don't think deeply about what that means or we, we, we assume far too little about what that means. And so David uses two words to, I mean he uses a number of words, but two words in particular that define out what God's love towards him is. The first one we find in, in verse 6. I love this little prayer. David says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. I love this prayer too because I, I've been, I prayed this prayer before. It just seems entirely self-interested and almost silly. Like, God, remember your great love and mercy towards me, but none of my sins. <laughs> just remember this stuff, but not. Let's just forget about that, right? It just seems very self-interested. But this word, steadfast love, it appears two times here. And it's, it's one of the ways that David had thought out God's love. And so even though there are lots of words in the Hebrew language for love, this, this word steadfast love, it has the idea of longevity towards it. God's love, it's not fickle, it's loyal, it's not short-lived, it's long-lasting, it's steadfast. Which is why what David says in verse 6 is, your steadfast love, it's been from of old. Do you know what David is doing there when he says that? Your steadfast love is of old. What he's doing, he's remembering. It's of old. God, I can look back, there are moments of your love I remember, I can point to. And so God's love in, in the midst of, of this, this troubled world, or David is remembering past experiences or past moments of God's love in the midst of his trouble. But David just, he thinks it out. God has never turned his back on people who reach out earnestly to him for his love. And even though that's what David is experiencing in this moment, he's reaching out and God hasn't yet picked him up. David's remembering, okay, there, there's history here. <laughs> there's, there's past. I have to remember this. That many uh, psychologists, <clears throat> excuse me, counselors are beginning to believe that the most fundamental need that we have as human beings, as, a hum- uh, as humans, is, is to be attached, to be received, to be loved. That's why the fundamental act of a child or an infant is to reach out to, to an adult to pick them up. 
I have a one-year-old at this time. Um, uh, his name is Abel, and, and that's, his, that's, his, that's the thing he does the most, is reach out for someone to come in and pick him up. He does that to Misty uh, far more than he does that to me, because let's be honest, she has far more to offer him at this point in life than, than I have to offer him. Um, and so just once in his entire life has he, uh, when, um, when I've held him in his arms and Misty reached for him, um, actually not reach for her, but say, no, I, I'm with him for a while, right? It's one time in his entire life it happened this week, so I'm, I feel like a great father at this point um, in time. <laughs> But most of the time, he reaches, like he reaches out for it. That's a fundamental act. Because when she receives him, there's far more, uh, far more in that reception than, than what happens when, when I receive him. And that, that's a fundamental need for us. To, for us, to, when we reach out, to know someone will reach back and pick us up. And so author and psychologist Brene Brown has done a lot of work on acceptance, on love, and shame. And here's the conclusion she reaches in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection. She, she writes this. She says, love will never be certain. But after collecting thousands of stories, I'm willing to call this a fact. A deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all men, women, and children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to, be, to love, to be loved, and to belong. When these needs are not met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break, we fall apart, we grow numb, we ache, we hurt others, we get sick. There are certainly other causes of illness, numbness, and hurt, but the absence of love and belonging will always lead to suffering. Now, in that quote, <clears throat> do you see our problem? Because even though for this moment of his life, Abel can reach out and there's people there to pick him, pick him up, but where we started this morning was that all human loves, they're, they're going away. Every person you reach out to, if you live long enough, will go away. Either because they fail you and, and cease to love you, or just death enters into the picture. That ultimately, we, we can't have our, our ultimate need of belonging, acceptance, and that in human love, because it's, it's all breaking down, it's dissipating, it's, it's deteriorating. And then, then we turn to, to God, and we have these moments where we're like, God, pick us up, and we nothing back. We don't hear anything in return. And so we begin to wonder, one, is, is there a God up there to, to reach back and pick me up? All right, if, I, if I'm screaming, reaching out, calling out for help, why, is there, why does it feel like there's no response, there's no reaching back? Will I be like an infant crying, reaching out for, for someone to receive me, and, and it's never going to happen? I think that's why this word shame appears three times for David. It's, it's not just that he's, he's worried he'll, he'll lose and he'll die. It's that what he's worried about is that the love he's waiting on, God's love ultimately, won't be there in the end. And, and the last thought he'll have in life is of his enemies, his friends, his former friends, taking his life from him, and God's love never enters into the picture. He, he dies in shame. But there's another problem that, that maybe we would, we would wonder, will God pick us up if, if we're there? That even those of us who are convinced there is a God up there to reach out to us, there's this question of, of there's another way that shame can enter into the picture, picture which is that, that, that picture David gives us in verse 7, which is, Hey, remember your steadfast love, but don't remember my sins and my transgressions. Don't remember my failures, my mistakes. That those things lead us to wonder, well, God, if I put out my arms, will God pick me up? He knows everything about me. He knows all the mistakes I've made, all the wrong turns I've made in, in life. Will, will he receive me or I'll be left reaching out in, in shame? And so it raises a question for me. How can David confidently say, remember your steadfast love, but don't remember my sins? How can he pray that? 
That's because there's the second word that David uses to define out God's love, his experience of God's love for him. It's not just that God's love is steadfast, it's long-lasting, it's loyal, there's history to it, but it's also because it's, it's covenant love. That's the second word that appears in a couple of places in Psalm 25. That our culture tends to view love in contractual terms, which is if you provide certain feelings for me, I will try to provide certain feelings back for you. If you offer something to me, I will offer something back to you. And so it's, 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 it's always contractual. It's based on what the other person is doing for you, which then shouldn't surprise us that a lot of our romantic relationships, they, they break down because our feelings towards other people begin to break down. And if, if love is ultimately based on what the other does for, for me, that makes love incredibly flimsy, incredibly weak. There's this incredibly weak foundation on which to build. And this word covenant is a sign, God's love towards us, it's not like that. It's not based on what you provide for him. And so this word, covenant, it's a, it's a religious word. Right? It's like, well, who, who uses that word? It sounds like a word a pastor would say. Um, so let's unpack. What does it mean? Let me unpack its definition with a story. <clears throat> that in, in Genesis 15, there's a man uh, named Abraham who has a similar moment to, to David here. God had, had made certain promises to Abraham, and they've not come to pass. And so Abraham's looking at God saying, God, are, is, are you going to do what you said you were going to do? Am I, am I waiting on you in vain? Are, are you actually going to show up? Are you like everyone else? Right? You, set, you, you make big promises, but you never deliver. God, are you going to do what you said you were going to do? And so God enters to the picture and says to Abraham, Abraham, I, to show you that I'm serious, I will cut a covenant with you. A word that's unfamiliar to us, but would not have been unfamiliar to Abraham. He would have known instantly what was about to come. So in that culture, you didn't mark a covenant with pen and paper because you didn't have pen and, and paper. What you would do instead is you would take, you would take uh, animals and you would, you would cut them in half and you would line the carcasses up. Um, so, so there's a pathway. And then you would walk through the, the, the cut up animals and you would say, if I don't do for you what I say I'm going to do for you, then may I be like these, these animals. So it's a very different way to, to make a commitment. In our day, we, we make it legal, we sign it. They didn't have that. Instead, they cut animals in half and walked between them. And that tended to be something they remembered because it was a very visual, gruesome, graphic thing. And so Abraham says to, or God says to Abraham, I want to cut a covenant with you. So Abraham lines the animals up on, along two sides. And, and what happens next is, is stunning in two ways. First, God, God appears... And, and he passes through the animals. You have to understand, kings didn't make covenants with their subjects. They didn't have to. The subjects complained and said, we want a better deal from you. The king just said, oh, that, this is great, actually. I'm the king, and you have to do what I say. So, no, I'm not cutting covenants. Like, I have all the power. You don't, so do what I say. But God, God, who actually has all the power, doesn't do that. He actually, he, he passes through the animals, and what he's communicating to Abraham in that moment is, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do for you, may I be torn in two. So God, I mean, he does what no king, no person in power would ever do in the first place. But then, secondly, what happens is Abraham doesn't walk through the animals. The ceremony ends with God. Which would have meant what God was saying to Abraham in that moment. If, if I pass through the animals, or if I, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do for you, may I be cut in two like these animals. And Abraham, you don't have to walk through. So if you don't live up to the terms of the covenant, may I be cut in two for your unfaithfulness, for your failures, for your sins, for your transgressions. 
Abraham, if you don't do what you say you're going to do for me, which Abraham didn't, may I be cut in two. It's stunning that God would even enter into a covenant in the first place, but he's taking all the responsibility on himself. And so this morning, if, if you're in a position where you either doubt God's love for you personally or you look at a world where all human love, it's breaking down, it's deteriorating, it's going away, it's less stable than it was, you need to do what David does here. You need to remember. This is God's, God promising his love for you, it's not a new thing. It's old. It's from of old. It has a history. It goes back to Genesis 15. It goes back before Genesis 15. And so Advent, Christmas, is a time we remember God's love from of old towards us and all that has happened before us. We remember God took on skin and flesh and bones to make good on the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 15. That if Abraham, that if we, that if you, that if I, that if we fail the covenant, then God would be torn in two. He would shed blood. And so he became a baby. He entered our world to love us with a love that would say, you never have to live in shame. I'm going to take your shame, your sins, your transgressions, your failures on the cross with me because I passed through the animals you didn't. And so Christmas is not just a time we remember God's past acts of love towards us, but we also remember his love. It doesn't, it doesn't go away. It doesn't deteriorate. It doesn't waste away. It doesn't get weaker because God's love ultimately didn't just enter into this world through a manger, but it went to a cross and it went through death and it went into a grave and it came out of that grave three days later, which means God's love, it's not subject to death. It's not subject to the fickle nature of this world. It's not subject to our failures. It's not subject to anything. It endures forever. And in a world where all, all the love you experience, the people you're closest to, it's all breaking down, it's all going away. God's love isn't like that. And so you and I, at Christmas time, we get to remember that the love and, that we experience at, at this time, even though it is fleeting, it is but a foretaste of the love that is to come. And so we remember at this season, any experience you have of love this season, looking at weird two-story Santas on the lawn, the, the moments of, of a drink with a friend, meaningful presents that others give to you that show that they, they know who, just who you are and just what you, you need. Like these, these moments of love we experience in Christmas, we look at and know those are a down payment of the true love which endures forever, which God has poured out for us first in Jesus and promises us at his second coming. That we are not infants reaching out for uh, uh, someone to come down and pick us up and, and, and receive us. We're not a bride waiting for our groom at the altar. We will not be left waiting for our God in shame. We remember our God bled for us. Our God entered into a manger, took on skin and flesh and blood so that he could be torn into for us on a cross so we can never wonder or doubt, will we be left waiting in shame? No, he took that shame on a cross and died for us, went into a tomb and came out. His love endures forever. And so we can pray with confidence, Psalm 25, in a way David couldn't. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O God. We can pray that. Because we remember, we know it's true. The love of God, it will not leave you waiting in shame. Right? That's, that's the mountaintop view of God's love David gives us. The first we, we said, but hey, this doesn't mean no trouble. The love of God includes trouble. But thirdly, David comes out off the mountaintop and goes back to where he started. The love of God, it will make you wait. Psalm 25, it begins and it ends in the same place. In waiting. It's how David ends his prayer, part of the psalm, in verse 21. He says, may integrity and uprightness preserve me. 
for I wait. I wait for you, God. I think one of the things that makes us believing that God really loves us is because God's love is rarely an instant experience. You often have to wait for it. And we hate waiting. Our culture in particular um, puts us at a disadvantage when it comes to, being, to waiting and being patient. We live in an instant culture. You could probably, you could know anything within two seconds right now by pulling out your phone and Googling it. You know instantly, right? You, know, you, have to, you don't have to go to the library. You don't have to wait. You don't have to call somebody. You just Google it and you know. You can probably eat just about anything you want within 10 minutes of leaving this building. That Later today, you could watch just about any movie you want from history instantly through a few clicks on your computer. God, this is the part of Christmas I hated the most as a kid was waiting for it. I hate waiting for Christmas. So we've been trying to teach um, our boys this. We have a little, uh, we have a, a chain going. We take a day off each Christmas. They just can't understand. Like, hey, Christmas is still 14 days away. You still have a ways. They just don't get it. And so we, there were a few nights ago, our, our two oldest, they sleep together in the same room. And oftentimes they play together long past uh, hours that a four and a two-year-old should be uh, physically awake. And so they were doing that. They were being loud and kind of just noisy. And so Missy went up um, to see what they were doing. And they had stacked these tubs on top of each other. And they were being loud and boisterous. And, and so she starts taking the tubs down, stacking them. And they just, they just lose their mind and start crying. And they're, uh, they're angry and upset. And this is not normal uh, uh, when we go up and tell them to go to bed. So Missy's like, what's wrong? And uh, our oldest says, we were celebrating Christmas. That was our Christmas tree. And you took it down. It's like, <laughs> like, no, it wasn't. It's not Christmas Day. You have to wait, right? But there's no sense of waiting for um, for those who are, are younger, and, and, and yet, if you're going to enter into a, an experience of God's love, it's rarely going to be instant. You're going to have to wait. And we hate waiting. But this word waiting in, in Psalm 25, it's not just like waiting for a day to get here, waiting for a plane to arrive. Almost any time you find this word in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's attached to waiting on God to show up. Right? It's, 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 it's waiting, it's anticipation for God to come and deliver you from what he promised he would deliver you from. And so it leaves open the question, will, will he show? As a pastor, I've prayed both for people and, and seeing God intervene in, in incredibly powerful and miraculous ways. I've also prayed for years for something that never changed. So how can we know in our waiting, our waiting for God, we won't be put to shame? He actually will arrive. He'll show up. Before we have to answer that question, we have to, we have to get a, at least a sense of what, is, what does it mean to wait? Because right? I think that probably the image you think of is, well, I just sit here and it's a passive activity. But it's not a passive activity for, for David. That one of the prime themes of Psalm 25 is, is obedience to the commands of God. And so you get this language throughout. Make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Uh, he makes the humble know his, his ways. You see this throughout the psalm. It's where the psalm ends in verse 21 when David says, May integrity and uprightness preserve me. Uh, the words integrity and uprightness, they refer to, to walking in the path that God sets, being obedient to his commands. And so for David, obedience is tied to waiting. And it was interesting, I was listening to a sermon that wasn't about any of this uh, this week by a former pastor I really respect. His name is Eugene Peterson. And what he said in that uh, that sermon, I think, is what David is saying here, which is that what Peterson said is if, if you're not experiencing the love of God right now, if God's love seems distant to you, what you need to do, you need to pick a command of God and go obey it. Just pick, just pick one, right? Go, go forgive an enemy. Go be generous of your times. Go, go love someone who doesn't deserve to be loved. Just pick a command and, and obey it. And I, that makes sense to me in light of, of Psalm 25, 
Because what David is using, I'm not experiencing your love, God. I'm lost. I'm out to sea. I don't know you. But I know the path you're on. I know the way you're down. So help me stay on it. Help me be obedient. Help me be generous. Help me love. Help me be faithful to your commands, even when I don't experience experience you. Because if I stay on this path long enough, I know you're at the end of it. So obedience is is crucial in our waiting, but it, it still begs the question, how do we know we can wait for him and won't be put to shame? How can we know he'll arrive, he'll show up, he'll make good on, on his promise? Or maybe the, the better, the more important question is, for us, for you, for me, is, is can you wait? Will you wait? The Christians were to be awaiting people. If you read the New Testament, the word wait is all over the New Testament. And in particular, it's around one idea. Jesus hasn't come back yet. And we're waiting for him. Right? And in particular, there's moments the church was persecuted and their posture was, we're waiting, God. Come, save us. We are, as long as we are Christians, and until Jesus arrives, we are awaiting people. And so can you wait for him? Just before David ends his prayer by saying, God, okay, I'm waiting, God, this is my posture. Before God ends, before David ends his prayer with that, he prays something that, that reminds me very much of a prayer that Jesus prayed. It's in verses uh, 16 and 17. David prays, um, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Now David's saying, I'm, God, I'm troubled. <laughs> Help me. And there's this moment where uh, one of Jesus' closest friends, John, was recording the prayer Jesus prayed the night he was crucified. He went to his cross, and one of the things Jesus prayed was, um, Lord, now my soul is very troubled. Right? The troubles of my heart are enlarged. And you can almost see Jesus going to pray, and God, rescue me. Take me out of my afflictions. Take me from my loneliness. Rescue me from, from the cross to come. But Jesus doesn't pray that. The next thing he says is, Yet this is the very reason I came. I came to go to a cross, to be alone, to be afflicted, to be troubled. I came for this reason, God. And Jesus went to his cross and died and suffered alone for us, for our shame, for our sins, for our transgressions. So that you and I could actually pray Psalm 25 and finish the prayer. Pray, God, take me out of my afflictions, my trouble. Save me, God, from my my distresses. We can pray that because Jesus didn't. We can pray that because Jesus went to the cross that was due to us. And so we can pray, God, we're waiting because we know you will deliver us because you didn't deliver Jesus from a cross. And so in the midst of a world where every human love you experience, whether it's your love for others, it's their love for you, it's, it's breaking down, it's dissipating, it's going away. In the midst of that world, we, we wait. We wait for a love that endures forever. We wait for a love that does not deteriorate at death. It's been through death, and it came out. It knows the grave, and the grave couldn't hold it. And so do you believe that this morning? Because you will, only t- you will only know that love, that experience, that endurance love. You'll only be able to wait if you're trusting in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, the one who took on skin and flesh and blood so that you could know Whatever it is that you feel at this moment, whether you feel like God loves you or not, whether you feel like God is near to you or not, whatever you feel at this moment, you are loved with a love that your failures will not cost you and your death will not take from you. For his covenant, steadfast love 
endures forever. Let us pray.